Well, there are killers that are loose today. But you can't tell who they are because they don't wear little buttons that identify themselves and they don't have warning labels that say, stay back 500 feet. In fact, many of these killers carry Bibles and they spend time in churches. But they create all kinds of confusion and conflict. They kill freedom and spontaneity as well as creativity and joy. Who am I talking about? Legalist. Legalist. It's the people who say they love Jesus, say they know Jesus, say they've been born again and set free, but they're still trying to live under the law. And when they try to live under the law, no one wants to do that alone. They want you to do it too. Laying it on themselves and laying it on you and other people around them, they're still bound up in legalism, policing their own life and policing those around them. So this morning, we're going to move on into Romans chapter 7. We've been in chapter 6, and it's so good. We could stay there so much longer. But I hope it's just whet your appetite to say, ah, I want to keep digging into Romans chapter 6. I want to memorize. I've had many of you say, I'm going to memorize that. But we are moving on. Romans chapter 7, because in Romans chapter 7 is where Paul puts his finger on this big problem, and it is a big problem. Legalism. Legalism. And he starts talking about our new relationship as a Christian to the law. You got a new relationship. See, in Romans chapter 6, Paul was driving home to us the fact that as a Christian now, you've been set free from the power of sin. You do not have to sin. Now, do we still sin? But are we bound to sin? Is Satan our master? Are we a slave and we can do no other? No. No. You've been set free from the power of sin. The chains have been broken. You've got a choice now. The Spirit of God lives in you. You can say no. You can say no. It's a fight. It's a knockdown, drag out. But you've got a resource and a power and a freedom you never had before. In Romans chapter 7, he he wants us to get, you have been set free from the sin law. There's a freedom from the power of sin in chapter 6, and now he's saying you've been set free from the law. That as Christians running back to the law, waving around the law, laying it on yourself and others around you is not how you live the Christian life. That's not how you live the Christian life. Law was never meant to be the fuel that drives your Christian life and motivates you to do what you do. Never. Now, let's be clear. Is law bad? And and Paul's going to answer that. We're going to stay three weeks in Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to stay there for three weeks. But verse 7, he's going to say what you might be thinking by the time we're done with these six verses. Well, is the law bad? You can go ahead and skip and look ahead if you want to. If you're that person that looks at the end of books, the answer is no. Law is not bad. But I tell you what, it will wreck you and ruin you and ruin others around you when you take it and try to do with it what God never designed for it to do. So he's telling us this is not the fuel that was meant to drive your Christian life. There is a fuel. Don't hear me saying there is no fuel. Oh, there is a fuel and it's something so much bigger and better than anything that the law could do. And that's what we're going to talk about in these verses. Verses 1 through 6 of Romans chapter 7. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. And I do hope you have a, say it, 
Bible, whether it's real Bible where trees gave their lives that you might have it in your lap or whether it's wired up with a light up screen, I want you to see this. I want you to see God's word for yourself. Romans 7 verses 1 to 6. Here we go. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman, now here's what he's going to do. Let me go ahead and tee it up so you'll know what he's about to do before you hear him do it. He's going to use an analogy or an illustration about how our relationship to the law has changed as Christians that you can understand from life. Something that happens on a human level, and he's saying that is the same thing that happened to you on a spiritual level. Ready? Verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as, she li- as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she's no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore... Whenever you see a therefore, you realize you better read what was before, and we just did. He's saying, get this, and now I'm going to make an application. Now I'm going to apply it to your life. Now I'm going to take and do something with this. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God." So get this, there's an amazing thing that happens when you understand that you're married to Christ and you get this relationship to Christ. You start to bear fruit to God. When you're over here stuck with the law, it's death. It's the smell of death and all you produce is death. You don't bear fruit to God with law, law, law. That you may bear fruit to God. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the passions of sins which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. See, law just tells you where you're, what you're doing wrong. Just points out your, where you fall short. Points out where you fall short. And stirs up the passions of the flesh. Because so, lots of times the flesh didn't even want to do that until the law said don't do that. And you're like, I find myself wanting to do that now. It just stirs it up and shows you what a big sinner you are and where you fall short and how you truly need a savior. Remember, a few weeks ago I said law was meant to lead you to Christ, not take his place. Therefore, my brethren, verse 4, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sin, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But... Now, we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would right now teach us, enlighten us, open our eyes, unstop our ears. Lord, correct us where we're crooked. Align us where we're misaligned. Shake us where we're deluded. Lord, change us. You said you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Lord, cause your word to do its good work in us by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you hear the contrast? Law was your husband that has died so that you can be married to another Jesus Christ. So where are you? 
Where are you today, your life? Not someone else around you, someone else is popping into your mind. Where are you? Are you still living like you're married to the law? Or are you conscious of and experiencing and tasting and delighting in a living, loving relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, don't hear me saying, oh, yeah, I want that. You mean, I don't want law. I'll come over here and I do whatever I want. No. You still want to obey and you still pursue holiness? See, the person, get this, the person who's a legalist and the person who's a lover of Christ, very often they're doing the very same things. If you looked at them outwardly, the difference is why they do it. The heart. The legalist is caught up in an, a never-ending sense of trying to achieve favor with God and earn favor with God. With the legalist, if, if you're struggling to say, well, I don't know, am I a legalist or a lover of Christ? Let me help you out. One of the ways you can know is there's a big difference in what the day of a legalist looks like versus a, a lover of Christ. A day in the life of a legalist is a, is a day that is spent largely constantly striving striving and trying to get to a place and never feeling like I've arrived, I'm accepted, I'm loved. Whereas the day in the life of a lover of Jesus Christ is a day saying, I want to love my kids. I want to be patient with my husband. I want to forbear with that difficult person at work. I want to handle my finances in a way that would honor God. Lots of the same desires, but it's out of an overflow of love and gratitude and worship, knowing that I don't try to do these things in order to gain his favor and get God's acceptance and to be forgiven, but because I already am. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ compels me. When you get a hold of what I'm talking about over here, it doesn't set you free to let go and let God and I don't have to do anything and I do whatever I want. Oh no, I'm compelled. The love of Christ compels me, moves me to live this way, but my motivation in my heart is freedom and joy and peace and I, and I do these things out of a place of resting, not a place of striving knowing that my biggest problem has already been solved. He accepts me, forgives me, loves me. There's therefore now no condemnation. And I live for him out of an overflow of love. Where the legalist over here still has a sense of, I don't know if I've ever done enough. I don't know if I'm doing it all right. I don't know. I guess I'm falling short. He loved, you know, it's almost like he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Today's going to be a good day because I read my Bible. Next week's not so good because I'm trying to read through the Bible in a year and I've missed two days probably have a wreck on the interstate (laughs) that job promotion i've been asking for i won't get it because i missed two days in my bible reading now very few people tell all their friends or share that with their whole small group but internally that is the thinking and that is the churning and that is the turmoil that my relationship to god and his love for me and his favor towards me is based on what i'm doing and it'll kill you it's joyless It's rigid, it's dry as dust. And this person living this way, this legalist is not just messing themselves up. Some of you know, live with someone like this, ooh, rough. Because when they don't experience grace and they're not soaking in grace and they haven't tasted in grace and the bulk of their Christianity is not comprised of their relationship with Jesus Christ but law, they lay it on others around them. High expectations, lots of judging. Big difference. Big difference. Where are you today? What do you have? What do you have that you're calling Christianity, that you're calling salvation 
Where are you? Are you a legalist or a lover of Christ? In the next three weeks, I want to help you, I think and I hope, to avoid being sucked into legalism. I want to show you what I hope from these six verses will be how you can keep from getting sucked into legalism because it is our tendency. It is our propensity. It is the nature of the flesh and you still have this flesh to contend with to go law, to go law. Make a list, give me a system, give, codify it. Give me some regulations, give me boxes to check. Doesn't matter if you're type A or not because here's the deal. You say, why would we keep doing that when this is offered? This seems safer. This seems to put me more in control. And we like being in control. I want to share with you three ways that I think you can avoid getting sucked into legalism. And I'm just going to share the first with the day. So I only have one main point. How about that? It's a long one, but it's one. One main point. I'm going to share another next week and another the following. Three ways you can keep from getting sucked into legalism. Here it is. Number one. First thing you need to do is you better stay focused on your new love relationship with Jesus Christ. Make much of Christ. The focus better be about Christ. Look at it in verse 4 of Romans 7. Verse 4 of Romans 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Through the body of Christ that you may be married to another even to him who was raised from the dead, that you may bear fruit to God. See, when you became a Christian, you entered into a love relationship with a living person, Jesus Christ. Vibrant, life-giving. You didn't just sign some contract. You didn't just sign a contract like you did with your wireless phone provider or your cable television provider, maybe Verizon or AT&T or Sprint or Time Warner Cable or Insight, and you got a contract that you signed, an agreement, a deal. Your spiritual birth was the start of a living relationship, not just some legal code or regulations to follow. But sadly, that is all so many so-called Christians have who say they know Jesus Christ. Their Christianity consists of a contract in a drawer somewhere, just like the cable television contract or, or, or wireless phone contract. I got them. I keep those things. I don't go look at them. They don't bring joy to me. They don't do anything to my everyday life. How excited do any of us get about those contracts in a drawer somewhere? If that's your Christianity, is it any wonder? Is it any wonder you're so joyless and rigid and dry as dust in your life? What about you here today? Do you have a contract or a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Huge difference in the way you live your life. Huge difference in the way you think. Huge difference in the way you treat other people around you. Huge difference in the way you respond to trials. Huge differences. Yet on the outside, for a while, both can look very similar and look like they're doing some of the same things. But the heart is entirely different. See, the religious leaders of Christ's day, we're not the first to make this blunder or to stumble in this direction. It is human nature. The religious leaders in Jesus' day made this same mistake, made this same blunder. They got lost in the minutia of hundreds of laws. And they loved being experts in the technicalities of the finer points of the law. But their hearts were cold and their lives were brittle and dry as dust. 
If you know anything about your Bible, and I hope you do, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, where we track with our Savior and we get to see him actually interact with people in flesh on this earth, who did he butt heads with the most? Who did he give his sharpest rebukes and admonitions to? Harlots? Prostitutes? Woman caught in adultery? Man who'd been embezzling from people? We Zacchaeus? Who? Pharisees, who were some of the most religious people in the day. But they were so caught up in rules, they missed the relationship that Jesus was offering them. Guess what? That's some of you here today. You've got a bunch of rules. You've got something that's codified. You've got lists. You've got check boxes. You maybe grew up in church. You maybe grew up in a Christian home. But all you got from it was rules. And you missed the relationship. It might have been presented to you that way, but it might not have. Some churches and Christians and homes and parents, it actually comes across that way. In other cases, it might not have been presented that way, but that's still what you took away. You didn't get the relationship with Jesus, but you did get a lap full of rules, rules, rules. The Pharisees missed what Christ was offering them, a life-giving, vibrant relationship. And so his strongest rebukes were saved with them. The woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, go and sin no more. Anybody here able to accuse you? Everyone put down their rocks and walked away? Neither do I. Woman on her fifth husband at the well, Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. Go and get your husband. Well, I have no husband. Yeah, you're right. And the, husband, the man you're with now is, is living with is not even your husband. You've had five husbands. Ooh, I perceive you're a prophet. Yeah, good, good guess. But he didn't condemn her, didn't lay law on her. He knew she's been seeking something. She's been looking for satisfaction and trying to find it. And men, I've come to give you life. I've got living water. He rebuked the religion. Now, don't hear me saying live with whoever you want. Just go through husbands and wives left and right and he'll bless you. Do hear me saying the people sometimes that are the hardest to bring to Christ are the ones who have lived the best lives and don't see their need for a savior. He said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, vipers, he called them. Whitewash was just take some paint and just slap it over the exterior or something and make it look better. He said, you are whitewashed tombs. You've made the outside look good, but on the inside are dead men's bones. You don't have life. Is that you today? We don't have the group called Pharisees anymore. But the heart and the attitude, it's still very much alive and well. What about you? Are you just a whitewashed tomb? Are you so busy working on the outside and trying to do all this thing? I'll get in a small group and I'll serve and I'll do this. And I'll... But you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Thinking the more I do this, the more I get in line with all these things I hear we're supposed to do, the more God will love me and accept me and be pleased in me and then you can't figure out, why don't I have joy? Why don't I have peace? Why don't I have a sense of, well, and it feels like gears that are just grinding. And and I know one thing for sure. Whenever I hear someone say, and I hear it quite often, I've tried Christianity, Brad. It just doesn't work. I can't see their heart, but I know there's the chance that I'm sitting with a legalist. And they haven't been born again. They don't know Jesus Christ. 
They just got a hold of the outward exterior stuff, the rules and the list. And they're just trying to do it in their own strength. And after a while, you would say, this doesn't work. I can't do it. I can't live like this. I wouldn't want to live like this. No, neither would I. Listen to me. Apart from the grace of God and the spirit of God and the living Savior within me, I would never, ever attempt to do one day of Christianity. Never. And God never meant for you to. That's why Christ left the heavenlies, took on flesh, stepped into our world, gave his life to keep the law perfectly and die for our sins. And he rose again the third day, victorious, conquering sin and death and Satan and hell and stands at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. He's done for us what we could never have done ourselves. And now we live in a relationship to the one who's done it all. That doesn't mean let go and let God. It does mean I love him, I know him, I delight in him, and I want to follow him. And he helps me from the inside out do these things. I'm not on my own, in my own strength. He lives in me. And change happens from the inside out. Very different than law pressing on you from the outside in. But that's all that so many Christians know. That's why Jesus said to the religious people in that day, Matthew 15, 8 and 9. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He said, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Listen to me. Rules can never change you. But a relationship with Jesus Christ will lead you into a lifetime of changing and growing from the inside out to the glory of God. Will you look perfect? Will you still stumble and fall? Oh, thank goodness for Proverbs. There's a proverb that says the righteous man falls seven times, yet rises again. One calamity is enough to lay the wicked low. How encouraging. Thank you. You're going to fall. But he's in you and with you, and he doesn't condemn you. He doesn't say, look at you, look at you. What are you doing down there? Pathetic. You call yourself a Christian? Some of you say, well, I hear that all the time. News alert, that's not your father talking to you. That's your enemy, Satan. The father comes just like a father would when a, when a girl or boy takes a tumble on their bike. Maybe there's some sicko father out there somewhere, but who runs down the street and says, get up, look at you, pathetic, told you how to do this. No, we scoop them up, they're crying, we run, we get a, we get a Mickey Mouse Band-Aid, you know, our father's far better than any earthly father. Do you have rules? A lap full of rules? A contract in a drawer somewhere? Or do you have a living, loving relationship with Jesus Christ? It's all about Christ now, not the dead letter of the law. When you trusted Christ, you died to the law. Look at it again in verse 4. When you trusted Christ, you died to the law. Verse 4, Romans 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So it's your relationship with Christ now. And the spirit of the living Christ, listen to this. It's the spirit of the living Christ living in you that works on you from the inside out. To produce a renovation and demolition project on a scale that dwarfs what law could ever get done from the outside. 
And yet people keep running to the law to try to get it done. Running to the law to get it done. Running to the law to get it done. Law can't get it done. Law's only job is to point out where you fall short. Law is the plumb line that hangs there when you think your wall is straight and the wall of your life is good. And you say, ooh, ooh, not so good. Law points out and exposes where you fall short. It'll never get it done. On cha- it gives you no power to change. No power to change. No power to change. The power to change is in Jesus Christ living in you who conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell. It's all about Jesus now. Let me show you what I'm talking about. You say, Brad, is that the only place the Bible talks about that? Are you making too much of that? No. The whole book of Galatians, if you want another place, the whole book of Galatians talks this way. Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. Go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at how he talks about Freedom in Christ and the Spirit versus letter of the law. Letter of the law. Letter of the law. Letter of the law. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 3. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ. He says you. Get this. He's saying you are a letter. You're an epistle. You're, an, you're a poem that God is writing. He's, he's writing a story. He's working a story of grace in you. You are an epistle of Christ. Ministered by us. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of a, say it, New covenant. Not that old covenant. Of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, what does the letter do? Say it again. Kills. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Life. See, listen to me. I'm going to say something strong, but I think it's supported biblically. When you focus on the law, you're focusing on death. He doesn't call us to keep focusing on the law. You look to Christ. You look to Christ. Think about the writer in Hebrews chapter 12 who's talking to us about how to live the Christian life. And it is tough. It is a marathon. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, focusing on the law, combing our lives over with the law, accountability partners and check, checklists out the wazoo. Now, fixing our eyes on Say it. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Some of you understand Jesus starts us, but you think you've got to finish it. You think you're the one that finishes it. You think grinding of gears is what you'll feel, and you will be worn out, joyless, and you'll be a pain to live with. It's not law. Skip down to verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 3. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. See, he's saying we got great hope because we got something better. There's a better covenant. Read, read Hebrews. You will see the book of Hebrews uses the word better 13 times. Better covenant. Better sacrifice. Better high priest. Better, better, better. This is better. Don't go back to this. This had its place and this had its purpose. But remember a few weeks ago I said... The law was meant to lead you to Christ, not take his place. Better, better, better. 
We have such hope. We use great boldness of speech. Verse 13, 2 Corinthians 3. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Every time Moses went up on top of the Mount Sinai and met with God, his face, because of the glory of God, would be radiating so brightly, he had to put a veil over it because it freaked the children of Israel out once he came back down. So he'd wear a veil. So he's saying, look at the difference between these covenants. That's what was going on then. Let me show you what's going on now. He says, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were hardened. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. But we all, with unveiled faces, you don't have to cover your face. You can look directly to your high priest and Savior, Jesus Christ. With unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed as in a mirror into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It is all about Jesus now. And there's freedom and there's joy and there's help and there's hope. We don't run out and live any way we want. We're not looking for ways to do more sin. I want to live for God. But it's not out of this shame-based guilt, condemnation. He loves me. He doesn't love me. I've done enough good things. I've read my Bible enough. I've prayed enough. I, I want to live for him and love him. And he helps me from the inside out to have these very same desires and to live this way and to bear fruit to God. It's the same thing that Paul was driving home to us in the book of Galatians when he says in Galatians 2, 19 and 20, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God, for I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by looking to the law, holding the law over me, getting enough accountability partners. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, the law never could save you when you were a lost sinner on your way to hell. And the law can't empower you now to live holy, righteous, and godly in this present age. It's powerless to do either one of these things. You say, well, what do I have, Brad, then? What, What will help me? Good news. It's not a what. It's a who. Jesus Christ. Listen, you got something so much better. You're married to Christ. You have a husband. You think about it. Anybody here that's married, and even those that have just attended weddings, one of the biggest deals in an earthly wedding is that you believe, you hope, that I'm about to say yes and commit myself to life to someone who would give their life for me. I know very few husbands that are called upon to do it. But you're hoping you just married a man who would, if he needed to, that he would give his life. Listen to me. As a Christian, you're married to a husband who already did. You don't have to wonder, would he? He says he would. He did. He did. While you were the most unlovely thing in the universe, while you were yet an enemy, a sinner, he died for you. That's the husband you have. And rose again. And loves you. 
and is coming back for you. You're married to Christ now. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to that old tutor and taskmaster. Don't think that you're going to finish in your own strength with accountability and codified list of regulations and laws what God by his spirit through Christ began in you. You're not going to finish it in the flesh. That's why Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3, I don't have time to read it, but go there later on today, where he says to the Galatians, it's some of the strongest language in all the New Testament. He says, what happened to you? What, what in the world are you thinking? He, he literally, in the Greek, is like, are you out of your minds? I gave you Jesus. I portrayed Jesus crucified and risen. I pointed you to Jesus. And now that I've left and gone on to plant other churches, you've turned back to the law. Because Judaizers moved in and came in right behind Paul and said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is great. But Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus all this stuff. He's like, if you lost your mind, who bewitched you? Do you think you're going to finish in the flesh by your own effort what God began by his spirit through Jesus Christ in you? No way. If you couldn't start it, you're not going to finish it, Paul says. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, one of my favorite verses, because it, it, it in one verse encapsulizes and summarizes for me the Christian life on this point. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. If I'm saved today, it's what God did. It's God's grace. He found me. He rescued me. It's not that I'm smarter than other people. And I, oh, I just decided to become a Christian. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Does that mean let go and let God and I don't have to do anything? Nope. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored. His grace empowers me and moves me to work hard and put forth effort not to earn God's favor or achieve it, but to just live it out because I want to. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I. Back to grace. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You say, Brad, where do I get that grace? If it's grace, if God's grace, where do I get that grace? So glad you asked. Jesus. Jesus. That's why John, in his Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 16, 17, says about this, about Jesus. He says, and of his fullness we've all received one truckload of laws on top of another truckload of laws and more minutiae laws. No, We've all received grace upon grace. Upon, literally in the Greek, it's charis anti charis. And it means grace in place of grace, in place of grace, in place of grace. You just keep getting new grace, fresh levels of great grace. We've all received of his fullness grace upon grace, for the law came through Moses, John 1 17. But grace and truth came through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you have an awareness of a relationship with Christ, guess what comes with that? Grace. Grace. He's the king of grace. He brings with him grace and truth. You died to the law. When you became a Christian and trusted Christ, you died to the law. But you didn't just die to the law to be a free agent that floats around and does whatever you want. When you died to the law, you got married to Christ. Married to Christ. Look at verse 4 again of Romans 7. Romans 7 verse 4. That you may be married to another. And then I want you to see a phrase and I want you to underline it. 
This one you're married to, he goes on to tell you something very important about him. That you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead. That's what I want you to underline. That's what I want you to note. That's who you're married to. Him who was raised from the dead. Him who was raised from the dead. You see, we're not just spiritually free agents. We're not just hanging out at the singles bars now spiritually doing our own thing. You're freed from the law and married to Christ. And this is not just some dead religion. This Jesus you're married to is alive. This is not some dead religion. It's not a stack of legal code. It's not a dusty contract in a drawer somewhere. You are married to the most glorious, all-providing, all-satisfying, never-ending, will-never-forsake-you, living person, Jesus Christ, who's more real than the person sitting next to you right now. But are you aware of that? Or is your Christianity more just a contract you signed up for? Is it any wonder you have such little joy and so it feels so dry and dusty and rigid? Relationship, a love relationship with Jesus Christ is what he offers. That's why Paul prayed the way he did for the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. When he prays for them and he says that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory... To be strengthened with power in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and width and length. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the knowledge of God. When Paul prayed for Christians, he didn't take them to the law. He said, you just need to understand more of what you have in Christ who lives in you. You need to be rooted and grounded in this love and filled up with this knowledge of God. And I know it's tough to get a hold of, but you'll spend your whole life just asking God, help me to grasp more the love of Christ and what he's done for me. The height of it, the depth of it, the width of it, the breadth of it that surpasses all knowledge. But, but we're supposed to make, gain ground in that. Learn a little more, learn a little more, learn a little more because it changes. You don't end up just sitting around saying, oh, I know more of the love of Christ. It changes how you live. When you are so overwhelmed by and convinced of and aware of and delighting in Christ's love for you, you live differently. Radically different. You have a new husband, lover, Jesus Christ. Get to know him. It's a love relationship that empowers us, not just a list of regulations. And so maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, Brad, it's a fair question. Then why do so many people, why do we tend to go back to the law? Why do we want to cling to the law? Why do we come here? Here's one of the biggest reasons, I think. As hard as this is, because it gets hard after a while, as dreary and dark and joyless and heavy as this is, listen to me, it still looks safer and you think you're more in control than giving your life to Christ. Because listen to me, he is the lover of your soul, but he asks for everything. He says, come follow me, and he asks for everything, everything. Yes, Lord Jesus. I can't tell you how many times when someone finally gets honest with me that I'm trying to share Christ with, and they say... Honestly, I just don't want to give up control of my life. 
it's not that they struggle with this, that, and the other. I'm trying to give them books on apologetics and find out what is their hindrance, what. Uh, and finally, thank you, so I can stop buying books and giving them to you. Thank you for being honest. It's not any of that, Brad. I just don't want to give up control of my life. Well, thank you. I'll pray for you then. And I will give you another book. This is what scares us the most. I'm no longer in control. Over here, you still think you're in the driver's seat. And, and see, just like with that contract, it's like legalism and the law-based You choose how far you'll go. You choose what you're going to agree to. You choose what level you're going to sign up for. And then you just work this system. Over here, all bets are off. You come to Christ and say, yes, Lord Jesus. It's like in the Chronicles of Narnia where where the two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, are, are showing the kids Aslan for the first time. And Aslan is Jesus. And he's scary. He's a lion. And they're like, oh, oh, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver says, Oh, honey, who said anything about safe? He's a lion, but he's good. See, when you come to Christ and you give him your life, it's not safe. Anything could happen. He, you don't know where your life's going to go from here. You, you're now a follower. I'm a Christ follower. I say, yes, Lord Jesus, but he's good. He's good. There's a safety over here that causes people to cling to this because I want to continue to be what I think is in control. Does that make sense? I think it's one of the biggest reasons that keeps people over here. Because committing to yourself to one person for life, forever, is scary. That seems, uh, I don't know if I'm up for that. In our house, at the end of this hallway that runs down to where the bedrooms are, we have one bookshelf, just with some books. But all of our yearbooks, college and high school yearbooks, are on that shelf. And when the kids were little, they're all old now, and they don't do this anymore. They got their own love lives. But unbeknownst to me, they were huddled up down there on a regular basis, pulling yearbooks off the shelf and just hooting and hollering and laughing. Because they loved to read the stuff that was written in the front and the back, you know, especially from girls to me. You know, oh, I'll always be here for you anytime you need me. I'll love you forever. I'll never forget you. Huh? And they're reading it out loud, just, ah, hilarious. And Vicky thought it was funny too. <laughs> but I don't think Vicky would think it's very funny if she found me on a regular basis, head down there, and I just keep pulling those off the shelf. And I keep reading that, all those pages, and pouring over those pages. Because I made a commitment, my affections and my allegiance, I'm married. I'm in a living love relationship now. As of September 27th, 1986, I stood at the altar in Sherwood Baptist, Albany, Georgia, and said yes to one person for life. And I'm to leave those old lovers and those dead letters. News alert that she was a Christian now. Don't keep going back to the dead letters and the old lovers. It's Christ. You're married to Jesus Christ. Married to Jesus Christ now. C.J. Mahaney gives a good definition of legalism when he says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Now, don't hear me saying we shouldn't obey. You see the difference, the, the tricky thing there? I'm trying to achieve forgiveness and get acceptance by my obedience. It'll kill you. It'll wear you out. 
It's performance-based. In other words, a legalist is anyone who behaves as if they can earn God's approval and forgiveness through personal performance, and you cannot. And that brings up a question then, since I'm hammering away on it's not these lists and it's not that. Maybe you've already thought, and I want to make sure that I clarify. What about the spiritual disciplines, Brad? Should we do anything? Is it dangerous when I think, well, I'm doing something I'm kind of disciplining myself. I'm starting to do something. I guess I'm a legalist. Now, we should practice the spiritual disciplines. It's the heart behind why you do what you do. We should do it. But there is a danger. I've got all kinds of books on spiritual discipline on my shelf. And I love them and I use them. But there is a danger. Here's one that I just pulled off my shelf. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. Great book. Great guy. He's taught right here in the fall at our conference. Okay, so I'm not against him. I'm not against his book. But here's the danger that, that he did not intend. He did not intend for this to happen. But here's what sometimes happens. You, you get a book like this, especially if you're a new Christian. You open it up and you're like, "Woo! all right, Bible reading. I got to get on that. Prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, fasting, stewardship, silence and solitude, journaling. Woo! And you start trying to do all these things. All of them were meant to be a means grace and before you know it they become like spinning plates and now I'm performing and I start evaluating my Christian life and whether God loves me or not by how well I'm doing all these things folks unless God tells me differently I'm never journaling again I hate it I read this I thought oh I need to journal got myself a nice pen got myself a journal started journaling I hate journaling what it did to me is it felt like work I'm writing out stuff, and I'm a pastor, so I write sermons, I write all kinds of stuff. All of a sudden, I've gone to work, I'm doing work, it's no longer a relationship with Christ, or enjoying Him, I'm working, and I'm thinking so hard about what anyone's going to think about, whoever reads this, it's like I'm putting, it's like, I set it aside, by God's grace, I'll never journal again, unless He tells me to, because when I meet in the morning with my God, I want to sit at His feet, and do things that draw me into, and remind me of my relationship to him that is unrelated for anything I do for him. Now, I got to read my Bible to feed my soul. I need to pray. I enjoy fasting. Many of these things are beneficial. Don't throw this out, but watch out. There is a danger that what God meant to be a means of grace can become a report card as you perform for God and try to do all these things to merit and earn his favor. What do you have today? What do you have today? Do you have a contract? And maybe you didn't know it until we had this talk today. What you had is no joy. What you had is constant insecurity and never a settled sense. What you had is a regular bouts with condemnation and shame. And what you've had is a very critical spirit to other people around you. Maybe you didn't realize those are the fruits of legalism, that you've had a contract concept of something in a drawer you signed up for and you don't have enough of living, loving relationship with a husband who already gave his life for you, Jesus Christ. Get over here. Get over here. And this is when you begin to bear fruit for God. You don't begin to do your own thing. You start really bearing fruit to God. This is when you begin to Smell like the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ, the 2 Corinthians 2.14 said. It's all about Jesus now.
God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And God, forgive us for minimizing him, pushing him to the margins of our lives, making him an addendum or an add-on or a footnote. When he is the main thing, bring Jesus back to center stage in our hearts and lives and minds that we might bear fruit to God. Thank you for not just giving us instructions, for not just giving us a leaflet or a booklet, for not just giving us a list, but taking on flesh and stepping into our world and giving us a living, risen, reigning Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.